Good morning. We're Paul and Barb Warren, and we're going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 5. That's page 576 in your pew Bibles. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken a captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in Nem and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet said, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Jehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting him from what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. 
So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Jehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Jehazi. When Jehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Jehazi? Elisha asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Jehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you, to your descendants forever. Then Jehazi went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous, as white as snow. I thank the Morins. I thank all the elders for their service to this church, for all the gathered workers, some of who cannot be here, actually. Uh, we were going to read and study a chapter of the Bible. I encourage you uh, who read the Old Testament to slow down and read it slow. I've been meditating on this chapter, obviously, for a long time in my life, but for the last couple of weeks, I've really concentrated on it. And the more you sit and meditate with the Word, the more you learn. And the Old Testament uh, is intended for our instruction. It was Jesus' Bible. and. By slowing yourself down and reading carefully, uh, you will learn wonderful things. This particular chapter is just full of human interest, pride, doubt, an army kidnapper and his victim, money and greed, missions, healing, salvation. It's all in this chapter. An example of God at work. And there are so many little messages. There are 10 little messages which we're going to pull out of it as we go through. So first, you heard it read. I'm going to tell you the story back again. Then we're going to, in a third level, we're going to sort of dissect it down uh, and grind it fine. I'm going to lean on you at certain points, um, which I can afford to do as being the old guy um, and before I get through talking about old guys, I want to introduce to you a really old guy. Uh, he is the elder of the elders. His name is Henry Anderson. He's a man you know little because he's so quiet. He comes in and he goes out. And, uh, but he was the chair of the McLean Bible Church back in a time this is Washington, D.C. This is a big church. This is a famous church when it was failing. 
and it was his job to see that pastor painfully out of its ministry and to find someone new. And he found a man, a Hebrew scholar named Len Solomon, who has led that church to grow and grow and grow. And we owe it, McLean Bible owes it to Henry Anderson. And I think you all should get acquainted with him. He's an old salt. He was in World War II as a seaman, and he is the kind of person who puts a tract in with every um, time he puts his visa card down at the restaurant, Henry Anderson. But back to the Bible. Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army, a great man, highly favored. The king loved him because of his successful raids on Israel. But he had a big problem, leprosy. However, there's a young girl who he had captured who concerns herself with this man enough to suggest to her mistress, Naaman's wife, that this man could find help if only he could get to Israel. The word is passed from the little girl to the woman and then to Naaman, who goes to the king, who sends a diplomatic pouch in Naaman's hand to the king of Israel. Fix him. King of Israel goes bonkers. What? Do you think I'm God? What is this? It's another attempt to, to rekindle the arguments, the anger, the raids, and the hostility and war between Syria and Israel. Well, he knew leprosy was incurable, and he really didn't give the prophet Elisha a second thought. But Elisha, through the grapevine, finds out about the king's plight and reminds him that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman arrives at Elisha's drawer with his horses and chariots, and he's greeted, not greeted by the prophet. He just gets a message handed out through the door of the shack that Elisha lives in. Go dip yourself. And he's furious, as you might expect. He'd expected at least a personal interview, a prayer, a ceremonial gesture to cure his leprosy. And besides, he had better waters in Syria to dip in. It's a fact that the water that flows through Damascus is clean enough to drink. Nobody could ever say that about the Jordan. But his servants begged him to reconsider. They were affectionate. They treated him kindly, and he finally turned and went to the Jordan and came out clean as a whistle, with skin like a child. And, but when he came back that way, Elisha was now there out to greet him. And he, Naaman, makes his profession of faith. First of all, he says, I now know that there's no God in all the earth except the God in Israel. Second, please accept a gift. Elisha says, not even a million dollars, not even one dollar. Think how he could have helped all the sons of the prophets with a million dollars, but he refuses, even with Naaman's urging. So Naaman goes to the second thing. He begs four bushels of dirt so that he can take it home and make an altar to the Lord and offer sacrifice 
in Syria to the true God. And finally, he asks forgiveness in advance because he's going to have to accompany his king into the temple of Rimen, bow down before that God. But he says, I will not bow down in my heart. My heart is for the true God. And to our surprise, Elisha sends him off in peace. However, Gehazi is not quite content to let Naaman go without some reward. So he runs after Naaman, makes up a story about some needy young prophets, and gets two talents of silver and two festal garments, and admittedly only a small part of the huge uh, present that was offered. Naaman gets down from his chariot, cheerfully gives him what he asks, and Naaman, and then Gehazi comes back uh, denying everything. But Elisha knew where he'd been, denounced his greed, told him this is no time for wealth of any kind, and the leprosy of Naaman was given to Gehazi. Well, the story is simple enough. It's simple enough so that you could tell your kids the story. It is a big people story, but it's easy enough for a child to grasp. A Syrian general comes to Samaria, and he's, he, he's cured of his leprosy. Now, Jesus told this story, so if you turn to Luke chapter 4, Jesus says this just about the way I've said it. A Syrian general goes into Israel and is cured by the prophet Elisha. But there's a twist on it. This was the only leper that was healed in Israel. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to his own people in his own town of Nazareth, and starting at verse 16, and I'm going to scan, sort of scan read it to give you the ideas. <clears throat> he goes to the synagogue on Sabbath, stands up to read, and they give him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opens the book to where it is written, and it's chapter 61 and verse 1. These words, which are so cool. And it's very interesting to watch the progression. It starts out so cool, and it ends up so hot that it's hard to believe that it all happened in about a half an hour. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, sits down. The eyes of the whole congregation are on him. He begins to say, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that, the prophet Isaiah, around 600 B.C., prophesies the coming of Christ, who will be the anointed one to release the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he left out the last phrase, which is, and the day of wrath of our God. He left that end of the sentence off intentionally. They all heard his gracious words, and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? 
And then he said to them, doubtless you have heard this parable, this, pro this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your own country. And I tell you the truth. In the days of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel when the heavens were shut three years and six months and a great famine over the whole land. And Elisha was, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was clean. But Naaman, the Syrian, when they heard this, they were filled with wrath. They rose up, they threw him out of the city, took him to the brow of the hill, and tried to throw him over. So that, st which starts out so beautifully with the Word of God presented to them in its prophetic fullness, turns into a riot and an attempted murder. So this little witness of God in chapter 5 of 2 Kings has a much greater impact on the New Testament people than we would have thought reading it casually as we do in the 20th century. Now, the reason why there was such trouble goes back to about 1000 BC and even before. Um, and it happened this way. We have a map, and this map shows in brown the territory which was Israel, and I don't have a, my little red pointer, but the land that, the, the wide mark that goes all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba and goes all the way up to Hamath at the top was all Israelite territory under David. He had conquered everything from the river to the Euphrates. And his son, Solomon, presided over the same territory and did beautifully, turned Israel into a land of gold, where silver was so cheap it was like stone. But it was at great cost because Solomon put his own people to work at hard labor. After he died, people petitioned his son, Rehoboam, and this was in 920 BC, after Solomon died, they petitioned this new king, Rehoboam, for relief from the forced labor. They had been temporarily forced out of their homes and jobs. They had to farm, to build, to cut stone, to do whatever the king demanded. His territories, that is, his personal land, was huge, and they all had to work for him. Along comes a very powerful man named Jeroboam and made the laborers plea for relief from forced labor. Please take it easy on us. We really, oh, Solomon was way too hard on us. We really can't take this much forced labor. Rehoboam flatly rejected him. He was going to be more oppressive than his father Solomon. So Jeroboam revolted. He took 10 northern tribes with him, creating a permanent split in the country. The northern kingdom was Samaria. The southern was, was Judah where, and Jerusalem, where the temple was. So we have two weak little countries instead of one fairly strong one. And Jeroboam decided he would consolidate his rule by creating a new religion, the religion of the golden calf, 
as if Israel hadn't learned enough when she were in the wilderness with Aaron and Moses. They did it again. They put up the worship of the golden calf, and no good came of it. No good king followed him. At one period, there were seven kings in 22 or 24 years. And one of them only lasted a couple of weeks. So Israel's course was downhill for 200 years, downhill until it was devoured by the Assyrians who followed. So in 720 BC, the superpower behind the Assyrians conquered Israel and it disappeared. So during those 200 years, Israel was oppressed steadily by the Syrians who are in Damascus up there in the corner. Uh, and there was a 100-year war with Syria. Not like Korea, for example, North Korea, South Korea, where there is at least a stalemate and nobody's killing anybody. In these days, there were periodic raids by the Syrians. Uh, they raided the border towns around Galilee, burning crops, pillaging, robbing, and kidnapping. God was punishing Israel for her breaking worship and for her rejection of the laws of Moses and of God himself. Now, some were wise enough to migrate out of the northern kingdom back into the south in order to escape God's judgment, but God did not abandon the northern kingdom. He sent two of his premier prophets, first Elijah and then Elisha, to witness to the northern kingdom and to uh, save those who could be saved, to warn those who would be warned, and to punish those who would not listen. So when we read this word in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, the first sentence, the Lord gave victory to the Syrians. We should cringe. God was working on the side of the Syrians, the pagan worshipers of the god Rimen, and against his own people. Hadn't God promised to bless Israel? Hadn't he promised to uh, be their God and that they would be his chosen people, a holy nation, a, a great uh, a, a nation of priests? Let's look at the second slide, and you'll see what was in fact happening. What Moses had promised years before, that if they obeyed God, he would bless them, but if they did not, he would not bless them, had come to pass. It turns out that sometimes God was helping Israel, even in the midst of these conflicts with the Syrians. Twice, for example, the prophet uh, came to Ahab and said to him, you think the Syrians are too strong for you. I'm here to tell you that God will give you a victory over the Syrians. And it's described as if Israel were like a little flock of goats on the side of a hill against this massive army of the Syrians, and they won because the prophet wanted to be, assure them that there really was the true God, and if they heard him, he would bless them. It happened twice. But a third time, he allowed the Syrians to prevail and to kill this wicked king, Ahab, the husband of Jezebel. So this second slide shows the territory on the north under the slash where the Syrian armies are, complete, are com 
coming down, and you can see they almost surround the Sea of Galilee hundreds of years before Jesus, and they are uh, continuing to harass. The, the tribe of Naphtali virtually disappeared. A hundred years of war. Now we come to the practical part, or the application part, which is the third reading. We must not say that God is on our side because we are a Christian nation, the most Christian nation in the world, by the way, and we are good. In fact, we are a disgrace. The Republican Party is a disgrace, much to my sorrow and I don't suspect the Tea Party will be much better. We must realize that God is on his own side, sometimes blessing us, sometimes judging us. Second point is that Naaman had leprosy. The word in Hebrew means a scourge or a strike. In, he, in Greek, it is a scale or a peel. Both are those genetic, or sorry, generic terms for a group of skin diseases for which the priest had the responsibility to diagnose and sometimes to treat. We know that Naaman had, in fact, a pseudo-leprosy because the classic leprosy, which is caused by the mycobacterium lepri, which we know in 20th century, 21st century, causes people to be in quarantine. This man is not in quarantine. He's out ministering, um, taking care of his family, doing his army duties, and uh, talking to the king and talking to the king of Israel. He's not in quarantine, so he does not have that disease which is infectious and uh, socially isolating. However, he is disfigured, he is uncomfortable, he has pain, he has crusts, he has sores, and he has disfigurement. So most people think that it is a disease in the same general cluster, which the priest in the Old Testament in Leviticus would have to work with, but we'll call it psoriasis, which is probably correct. However, like the true leprosy, it is also incurable and interfered with his life. Leprosy is a metaphor for sin, deadly, disfiguring, and incurable. And only God can cleanse us of our sin burden and give us a fresh start. Well, we might ask, who on earth would like to help this war criminal, this terrorist, this kidnapper? Who in his right mind would give any credence to him? Well, in fact, it's curious that people really like him. The king likes him, his servants like him, even this little girl who was torn from her mother's arms and lives as a permanent exile in his house loves this man and wants to help him. But unfortunately, when the word gets to the king of Israel, it has been distorted because the little girl said, if you realize that there's a prophet in Israel, he could help him, name of Elisha. When it gets to the king of Israel, it is, you cure him of his leprosy. And the king says, what? Am I God? What are you asking me to do? So the message has been changed from the prophet will do it to you do it. Okay? 
One of, our, one of our real issues in ministry, in communication of any kind, but in particular spiritual communication, is to make sure we keep our story straight. Okay? So if you say, you need to work on your spirituality, that is not the kind of communication that will help the person. You have to be a little bit more direct. And if you're in doubt, use scripture to help you. It will, it will carry its own message. It promises us that it will serve its purpose, not necessarily our purpose. Next, we note that Elisha did not put in an appearance when Naaman came with his army of 30 armed men, with his camels, with his mules, with his chariots, and these perhaps 30 guys, and plus a million dollars. Silver bullion, gold coins, and gorgeous Damascene garments. To this day, Damascene is one of the prized fabrics that we know. He expected at least that this prophet would come out, bow low, swing incense, mutter incantations, use his magic staff to, to uh, go over his uh, lesions and say something significant. Instead, he just so says, go dip. How to be insulted in one easy word, okay? But let's look at the Jordan. He says, go dip in the Jordan. It turns out that the Jordan is a symbolic river. It is a place where in Bible times people fulfilled a rite of passage either by bathing in it or passing over it. You recall it was there that Israel, after 40 years in the wilderness, passed over from the desert into the land of milk and honey. It was there that John the Baptist performed his and, pre and preached his baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was there that Jesus was baptized, identifying him as the Father's beloved Son. So the Jordan actually has entered into our folklore as a crossing point from earth to heaven. So we have lots of, lots of uh, folk songs which, if you think about it, use the Jordan River. Jordan, River Jordan, deep and wide, milk and honey on the other side. On that one? Deep river, my home is over Jordan. And on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand and cast a wistful eye to that bright, fair, and happy land where my possessions lie. Go dip in the Jordan. That's where Naaman would experience his transformation, not only his skin and his body, but his soul. But at first, he's outraged. You can imagine what he's thinking. Huh. I don't like this. I am not being treated with respect. This situation is absurd. That water is cold. After all, it's fed by the snows of Mount Hermon. It's muddy. It collected all kinds of silt. No garbage, but it's muddy. And by the way, there's a jungle along the edges of the Jordan. I might have to work my way through a thicket to get there. And I have to get out of my clothes and get into my skivvies in the front of all these smiling, happy servants of mine. How, what do you think? And do you think I've ever been wet in my whole life? 
not, not all in my whole life. Only during the Roman period were people really taking baths. Once the Black Plague and the Dark Ages moved in, nobody took baths. The Revolutionary War time in America, people did not know about baths. Everybody had head lice. George Washington told his niece, don't crack your head lice in public. It's impolite. Later in that century, there's a record, and it's a beautiful little book published by a University of Wisconsin Press called When America Took a Bath, a story of a woman who said in a letter, I took a bath today. It, it really didn't hurt. <laughs> so Naaman, who's never had a bath in his whole life, uh, and has to do this in the presence of people who have never seen him outside of his blue and gold army uniform, with sword and shield by his side, says, I'm just not going to do it. It's stupid. But mercifully, his servants stopped him. They loved this man, and they reasoned with him. My father, if the prophet had commanded you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? And this is part of our problem, too. It's hard to obey God and do something simple and humble. We all want to pay for our salvation. We should bow down and ask Jesus to forgive our sins and to give us new life. Is that supposed to do something for you? I will give my money to charity. I will go to work in Haiti. I will march against injustice. But our friends plead with us. The pastor isn't asking you to do something hard. It's very simple. Simply pray God to forgive your sins and ask Jesus for your salvation. He died for you so that you would not have to be separated from God. He promises to cleanse your conscience and free you from your old sins. Well, like Naaman, people today resist going through this humbling experience. It's a serious step. And curiously, in the modern period, that is since uh, the last 20, 30 years, <laughs> modern period, the last 20 or 30 years, most people do not come to Christ in a crisis experience through coming to the front, being uh, repentant, bowing down, and having their sins forgiven in the presence of the whole group, and then going through baptism. There's one church, at least in California, that does that in the same evening. You come forward, you receive Christ, and you have, are baptized. Most of us have come to Christ slowly, uh, uh, not through crisis experience. And consequently, baptism does not automatically follow. It tends to get put off and put off and put off. And for some people, uh, it is considered quite unnecessary. But big people get baptized. We recently had a Presbyterian minister baptized in this church. And I remember a vice president of InterVarsity, a famous internationally known Christian leader, a Lutheran, who decided to obey the call of Christ and to be baptized. And he was baptized in Lake Higanza. And that's dirtier than the Jordan. <coughs> Been there. <coughs> he said, does anybody have lakeshore property on Higanza? I don't want to speak against you. <laughs> this 
national leader, international leader, said it was a humbling experience, but he felt renewed and grateful that he had accepted the challenge to confess his faith in public, to undergo baptism by immersion as an adult, a milestone in his life, and it enabled him to serve in responsible positions in the church. Well, Naaman finally did it. He went down, he went under the water seven times, and he came up clean, with skin like a baby, no warts, no scars, no sores, completely clean. And it didn't even hurt. And he's jubilant. He's cleansed. He's healed. He feels like a new man. And he knows now, he is a new man now, because he now knows that there's no king but the king in Israel. He is the true God. And he's so grateful that he offers the prophet a million dollars, silver bullion, gold coins, 10 gorgeous Damascus robes. So the leprosy is now washed away, and now the prophet comes and addresses Naaman directly. Naaman makes his confession. He acknowledges the true God, promises to pray to him and to sacrifice to him, and the details of the law of Moses can wait. Naaman does not have a year to study Hebrew and be circumcised and memorize Torah. But he does ask for four bushels of dirt. This is really funny. He's going to take, go to Damascus and he's going to create an altar to the true God. He's going to take these four bushels of dirt and he's going to map out a space about six by six, put stones around it, pour in these bushels of dirt and put an altar on it and say, this is Israel, this is where the true God is, and this is where I'm going to worship. Sounds stupid. But you know what's happening? God is establishing a beachhead in Damascus. This is, this is the altar of the true God. There is a true God. And I don't know what kind of uh, trouble Naaman may get into for doing that, but he is taking a risk. And he will never stop talking about what God did for him. Well, Gehazi thinks, hey, we're letting a million dollars go by. How about a little bit of that rich prize for us? My master is just too rigid. He's too dogmatic. He's too puritanical. And we prophets are so poor. How about a little help here? And he got whacked. He got punished severely for doing that. Naaman's disease was on him, and it was hereditary from there. And you say, well, that's awfully harsh, isn't it? Well, the first message is, give me the previous slide, please. Salvation is free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. Can you all say it for me? Salvation is free. Salvation is free. free. Salvation is free. Say it again. Salvation is free. free. Is it? Free. Amen. But the second part and follows immediately is when the punishment seems more harsh than the sin would appear to be, you should always look and say, what is going on here? Something is going on here. And the message is, salvation is free. Gehazi, you cannot make the story untrue by your mischief. 
Because this story is not just for Naaman, it's for everybody. And if salvation can be bought for a million dollars, everybody is going to think that's the way it is. So when you see that, the, that God has been more hard on people than you think he should be, look again. For example, Moses in the wilderness is told by God to, to pray to the rock and water will flow. Once before, Moses had struck the rock under God's instruction and the water f flowed. This time, Moses has had it with Israel and he hits the rock twice. And God says, sorry, pal, you're excluded from the promised land. You blew it. You say, wait a minute, he just lost his cool. Well, that's, not, that's nothing, that's nothing. No, Christ is struck once for our salvation. Christ is the rock that followed them. And Christ is struck once. Moses struck him twice, and that broke the truth that Christ suffers once for our sin, and after that you pray to him, and the water flows. The water of his spirit is given to you in response to your request. So when you read your Bible and think, God is being so hard on people, Look again. Now back to the little kidnapped girl. She loves her master, this man who ruined her family, tore her from her mother's arms. And God loves Naaman too, enough to pour grace out on him and heal his leprosy and turn his face up to him. And this brings us to our next message. God commands us to love our enemies because he does. He does not ask you to do something that he doesn't do. He loves this man. He loves the Syrians as he loves Israel. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you so that you may be the sons of God, the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Jesus loves Muslims. And he's drawing them to himself by the thousands. Pray for your enemies. Don't pray them dead. Pray them alive. One more thing about this little girl. She started a work of evangelism, really God's work, and because he engineered the whole thing. And she did it by just offering a suggestion. I know where there's help. Why didn't she direct Naaman to her God? He wouldn't understand. He needed help, and she started the chain reaction going, a chain of communication. She speaks to her mistress. He goes to Naaman. She goes to Naaman. Naaman goes to the king. The letter goes to the king of Israel. The grapevine has to work. Elisha hears the message. He sends a message, and there are about eight people involved between the, the need and the completion of it. Somewhere you may be along the lines of a, a chain of communication between a God and a person whom he is drawing to himself. People won't tell you that they need God. Naaman certainly didn't think he needed God. People will say they need direction, they need a sense of purpose, they need some way to make sense out of this crazy world, they need some help for a sick child, they need help in quitting smoking, they want to pay for the mortgage, but you know where there's help. 
And you don't have to do it yourself, but you have to be able to point the way. I was on a, now we're at the funny part, uh, a couple stories. I'm on a bus coming from Atlantic City to Philadelphia at night after a conference, an hour and a half drive on a dark and rainy night. I'm seated next to a young woman who's an orthodontic technician, and I thought, well, it's a long, long night. I'm going to learn all I can about orthodontia. For a solid hour, she taught me everything one could hope to know about orthodontia. And when the topic was, was exhausted, she turned to her, boy, about her, her boyfriend, who was an Episcopalian priest, and she said to me, he doesn't know really much about God. Do you know anything about God? Oh, dear. Thank you so much. So I said, let's talk. Let's talk about Jesus. And for the rest of the hour, I had about a half an hour left to talk about Jesus. When we got into the airport, she said, everywhere I turn, someone tells me I have to find God. A nun in the airport coming in tapped me on the shoulder and said, you have to find the Lord. Could you do that? Of course. You're not a nun, but try it. I'm myself not a very good evangelist, but the other day I happened to be in a rock shop. I have rocks in my head. And uh, I looked at a specimen, had a little card, and it says, this crystal will give you special knowledge. <laughs> Ever seen stuff like that? I took it to the clerk. I said, the card says that this crystal will give me special knowledge. Do you really think so? Do you think there's any knowledge in the crystal? There, there are vibrations all around us. <laughs> There's energy everywhere. Uh, this knowledge doesn't come out of the rock, you know. It comes out of the one who made the rock. A rock can't do anything. Well, there is a great spirit there, and he pervades everything. God made the rock. God is the creator. He has the knowledge we need. It's not in the rock. She said, thank you for drawing me out. As I went out the door, I said, find God. Ten little messages. Read them off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. God is on his own side. Political groups cannot rely on his favor. Two. Keep the story straight. Use the scripture to help you. Make sure of the message. Three, it's hard to do something simple like trusting in Christ. Four, baptism is humbling, easily resisted, but very greatly blessed. Five, Naaman's, Naaman's new faith changed his behavior as well as his attitude. Six, salvation is free. Seven, when you find God punishing more sin more severely than you think it requires, check it out. Look again. Eight, God commands us to love our enemies. He loves our enemies. Nine, and evangelism is engineered by God. And ten, be a chain, link in the chain of communication. Point the way. Let us pray.
Lord, we've, you've called us to be your servants. Scripture says a little child shall lead them, and this little girl led the way to the salvation of a bad guy. Help us to be also in the chain of leading people to Christ. We don't know it all, but we know enough to say, if you go that way, you'll find healing, you'll find forgiveness, and you'll find peace. Bless us, Lord, in the happy ministry of doing your work. Bless us one and bless us all. In Jesus' name. Thank you, uh, Dr. McKinney. I just want to uh, say just one quick thing. I'm Greg Walters, chair of the uh, High Point Church, and I want to thank Dr. McKinney for uh, leading us and for Shirley back there behind. You spent so many years behind that post back there. I feel sorry for you, <laughs> but she's waving, and we appreciate and love you guys so much. Um, and you've been such a strong link in the chain here these uh, many, many years you've served. So thank you again. Uh, these, this Sunday and next Sunday are kind of transition Sundays for us, and uh, we appreciate so much uh, your faithfulness in praying for High Point as we go through this uh, change period.